Hey folks, welcome to Mike Dominic's show. This episode's a little late. We had some networking and audio issues, and it just required a little more TLC in the editing studio than I would like. Still, I think we got it mostly together. This is probably going to be more or less the roughest part. And yeah, it's a great conversation with uh, Sean Hemel, who does a bunch of really interesting IoT stuff and... We go into a lot. This is a longer episode than usual. I think it's really worthwhile. To, uh, worthwhile listen. As always, the show is brought to you by the Mad Botter Inc., my consulting company. If you need something developed, uh, particularly if you need something developed for Python, or and this is extremely rare, I have some iOS bandwidth open. That'll probably go quick. It is currently the 14th of June as I record this. So yeah, if you do need native iOS work done. Let me know. I do have a little bit of bandwidth coming up for July. And we do have Python bandwidth starting July 15th as well. So if you need something developed, drop us a line. As always, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Dumanuko. And thank you for listening. Here we go. All right. Well, good morning. Almost afternoon. Sean Himmel, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm just trying to get back to work here and uh, you know, keeping up with news cycles. What else is going on? That's right. Isn't it just, you know, fun living through history? I'd like maybe a day that's non-historically significant. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the, this whole year has been just one thing after another. You know, I really hope that this, everything that's going on might be a catalyst for positive change is the one optimistic uh, view I have of it. Yeah, that would be amazing. And yeah, so obviously, you know, hoping everybody's safe the virus and all that. But you've been locked down as well, right? Have you has that affected your work at all? Thankfully, not particularly, you know, with the outbreak and everything, I'm still able to work from home, my clients are still happy with the work I'm doing and able to continue a relationship with me. So that's, um, I'm very thankful that that is the case. I know that's not the case for a lot of people. So I'm personally in a good spot with a lot of that. So yeah, I mean, and I've been working from home for the past year and a half. So I mean, nothing really changed, except I've, you know, generally been avoiding, say, taking my dog park or going to hang out, going to dance classes, that kind of thing. So that that part I'm missing. And I'm able to stay with my parents and help things out with my family, with my you know immediate family, help with groceries, you know, help do chores and that kind of thing. Awesome. Now, for those who don't follow the uh, Hello Blink show or haven't, you know, heard of anything you're doing, what is that work exactly? Just, you know, the elevator pitch. Uh, for Are you asking about Hello Blink show? Uh, just in general, what do you do? Oh, great. So a quick background, we met through the Hello Blink show. And that is something that Harris Kenny and I put together. And I know that we have a whole episode on that. So check that one out as well. Uh, that's a podcast we do that kind of supports this idea of People who want to say leave their day jobs or start a company on the side and you know create a side hustle where they can start their own company and we're really targeting tech people and it's something that Harris and I have both done and so for me I worked at Spark Fund for doing engineering for about a year and a half where I was making electronics a writing firmware that our libraries a lot of open source type of stuff really helping the maker community uh, professional engineers um, and a lot of hobbyists as well. About a year and a half into that, I was asked to move to their marketing department where they needed help creating videos, they needed help creating blogs, because I really enjoyed doing that part. So unfortunately, I left some of the engineering side behind and I still, I missed it for sure. And, and I'm able to get back to it some today, which is nice. I found a good balance, but I 
was able to do a lot more front-facing stuff with videos, creating blog posts, a lot of tutorials, anything that really helps as an inbound marketing content for people to find on the internet and learn more about SparkFun and what they do by providing value to the community. Like, hey, what is I squared C? And we have this whole tutorial. Like, I think if you search for what is I squared C, one of SparkFun's posts come up, not mine, but that's the basic idea. So very technical content and attracting an audience for them. I did that for a while and then noticed that, you know, I might be able to do this on my own with multiple clients. And that's what I do now. I, I create content, mostly video. Video is my preferred format. And I do a lot of stuff with uh, DigiKey Electronics. And if you go to their YouTube page, I've got my own little section on there and I'm a contractor with them. And I've uh, contracted with some other people as well. So yes, freelance, mostly content and some engineering things. Okay, so for those of us who are, you know, just pure engineering heads, what that means is if we have some cool new WizBang product or, you know, open source project or, I don't know, something we want to show off, right, you can help us make a impactful video for it? Correct. For me, I usually focus around, say, like, hey, you've got a new product and I can help create videos for it in the sense that, like, hey, let's show people how to use it. Let's show interesting projects that kind of thing. Interestingly enough, what I have found is that projects are very much hit or miss. It's like swinging for the fences, swinging for that home run. Sometimes you make a really cool, interesting project and it goes viral and hey, that's amazing. But I find 99% of the time, that's not the case. Like a few people are like, hey, that's neat. And the whole thing kind of fizzles out. So I usually focus on finding content that is interesting that people would continue to search for over and over and over again. So for example, some content I helped with Salier, they do a USB logic analyzer. And uh, about a year ago, I was contracted with them to create content. And this was all written content. And it's, you know, if you search for what is logic analyzer or logic analyzer versus oscilloscope, right? Why would you need one versus the other? So that's a pretty common Google search. What is a logic analyzer? You will likely land on one of their pages because they helped create content. And I was a part of this, this team to do it. That helps answer some of those questions, right? And not in the sense of you should buy Salier because it's the best, but legitimately answering what is a logic analyzer. And Google ranks that very, very highly. So when you search for that, you land on that page and now you're like, oh, oh, this is Salier. I wonder who Salier is. And that's that's how you find out about a company. That's the basic inbound strategy. So I try to help with more of that inbound stuff, You know what they call evergreen content, things that continue to search and get, get hits over and over and over again. I like to make projects every now and then, but I, I find that I'm not as good as like some of the other people out there like Mark Rover, or Hacksmith, or these people who just make these visually appealing and just amazing projects. You know, I would love to be one of those guys, but right now I, I'm in this niche of like, let's help companies get this evergreen content out there. Got it. So the basic strategy would be you create content that's not specific to your product, but is somehow related to it, right? So I'll, I'll give it a, go ahead. You do want to create content around the product itself a lot of times, okay. but the, the issue is if, you know, if somebody doesn't know what, you know, what mad botter is, for example, you wouldn't want to start with what is mad botter because nobody's searching for that, right? That's not good SEO. However, that content is necessary because when somebody lands on your page through another means you'll, they'll want to check out that content eventually, hopefully is the plan. You know, they see that the mad botter keeps creating all these, like, you know, how to create, you know, software as a service. And they're answering all my questions about this. Like, what is, what is, who is a mad botter? And you go check it out and they land on your content explaining what you are and what services uh, you are. Got it. Okay. So you want to start at a general level 
and then also introduce, you know, either, I guess, using the Madbot or my company case, you know, why you should hire our consulting services or, or use our Rabot product. But I'm sure like in the case of uh, Spark, Spark Fun, is that correct? Yes, Spark Fun. It's a... Uh, it would be general content, but then also you can purchase the parts for this project. For those who don't know, SparkFun sells like a bunch of embedded controllers, like stuff like Arduino, Hobby and stuff. Actually, they sell a lot. I was doing some shopping. This is a total aside. It is very easy. It's very easy to rack up a cart there. Oh, yeah. They have lots yeah. of fun stuff. I, I would say, you know, SparkFun and Adafruit are, you know, you know, competitors. They operate in a very similar space and you can go hog wild. I mean, it's, it's like Christmas there. If you've not played with electronics or you're just getting started, those two companies are the way to go. You know, you go to like DigiKey and they're, it's daunting to try to navigate their catalog and SparkFun and Adafruit both create their own products to help you get started. And they have libraries to help you get started. They really try to make it as easy as possible to tinker with electronics. So yes, it, it's, and yeah, you can spend a hundred, $200 there and not even bat an eye and be like, oh, these parts look cool. Let's add them to the cart. Yeah, I mean, this is neither here nor there. I particularly like the the kits they sell aimed at younger folks. Um, I know you know that I'm big into the whole STEM thing. And just the idea of being able to buy a kit that I know is like going to help, you know, like my son's a little too young, he's four, but someone, let's say around seven or eight, build like a little, I don't know, remote controlled Arduino powered or whatever powered robot, right? I think I'm getting off on a tangent, but I, I honestly, I had never heard of them until I, I met you in Harris. And I was shocked that I hadn't because I was buying from another company that is just like you're, you're suggesting where you're growing in. And it's just like a gigantic catalog, with no images, no suggestions. And you have to literally know the part you're looking for. Yeah. If you don't know the difference between transistors like a BJT and a MOSFET, you're going to be so lost. Fair. Yeah, that's fair enough. So, okay. Begs the question. So what's, uh, what's an interesting embedded project you've worked on or Arduino project that you're you know, kind of proud of that you think would be interesting? Oh my goodness. So one that I worked on and I did a, I got on Adafruit Live is something I'm making for DigiKey. And it's kind of this ongoing thing that I'm creating videos around to explain some of the concepts. I created an anomaly detection system. And this might be something for like, think like industrial motors, right? Or, or you're sending something to space. And the big one for a lot of space people, my understanding is uh, ball bearings, right? If when they fail, like you lose a whole satellite, because you can't like rotate your solar panels anymore. And ball bearings, like we assume it's like a, oh, it's a screw, right? Like it's a basic part. You just throw a ball bearing in a thing and it's going to work. Like, well, no, these things fail. And when they fail, the satellite that was supposed to work for 20 years now only works for three and you just lost a billion dollars. So anomaly detection, fault analysis, things like that. You want to be notified of when something is about to break so that you can perform basic maintenance and not say lose a multi-million dollar piece of equipment. And, you know, think of like robots in a factory, right? You want to know that the motors on them or the servos on them are going bad. So you can do some basic stuff before they just grind a bunch of gears and you have to replace the whole thing. And so what I had to do was learn a bunch about machine learning. And this included things like neural networks. And uh, I was looking at Mahalanobis distance, where the idea is you collect a bunch of accelerometer data from, say, an industrial motor. And that's what I was using as an example here is um, an industrial motor. And for me, an industrial motor is a ceiling fan because that's all I have access to. But it worked as a useful example because I can run it at one speed and then, like, you know, you hit the fan blades to induce some type of anomaly or, you know, tape quarters to them to offset it. And the Mahalanobis distance is you're basically collecting a bunch of data, you know, say around about, you know, like, you know, 200 samples per second for 
one second, you look at it, you're like, okay, here's the, the median of all that data, the X, Y, and Z accelerometer data. And, you know, this is this, you know, the standard deviation, basically. And you would say, oh, if something's outside of, you know, two standard deviations, that's an anomaly. And the Mahalanobis distance does something a little different because some of your axes might be correlated to one another. And the Mahalanobis distance takes that into account. So, you know, I, I don't want to get into like all the machine learning stuff here about the math behind it, because I'll be honest, like I don't fully understand quite the math behind Mahalanobis distance, but it's pretty interesting how it works and you're looking for anomalies. And what I found is that the Mahalanobis distance to do that calculation is much faster than the neural network, but the neural network allowed me to create a much more robust model so that I could have the fan in different states. So like, oh, I could run it at medium and low, and those are both considered normal. And the neural network would understand that where, you know, doing the basic statistical analysis, it would not. It started thinking everything was an anomaly where everything is normal at that point, which was just fascinating, right? Like it's one of those you know, I see lots of complaints in the machine learning world, like, oh, you know, we should teach more old school machine learning stuff and stop teaching neural networks. And I'm like, well, there's an understanding to be had around teaching both of those, but I can see why neural networks are very popular right now. It, it's kind of this blunt sledgehammer approach to machine learning that like kind of magically just works if you tweak the parameters just right and play around with them, right? It's like it's like antenna tuning if you've ever done like any RF stuff. You, right, now you clip right. a little off, off that end and it, and it works. Why does it work? I don't know because I clipped the bit off of that end, right? That's kind of what right. neural networks are like. Wow, that is a very interesting use of a couple technologies there, right? So you have the embedded systems and then you have machine learning. What languages would you have been working in? I'm assuming Python or C++, but I could be wrong. So no, you're you're absolutely correct. So for if you're using TensorFlow, it's exactly those two. And for training a network for, you know, when I to collect data, I threw stuff in Arduino. I just said Arduino, collect this data, you know, from from a little Arduino microcontroller, collect data and pipe all this data to my computer. I just set up a very simple server and it just dumped all these this data into a bunch of files. And then I used Python, specifically Keras and TensorFlow to read these files with, you know, just basically comma separated values of raw accelerometer readings in like GeForce. And I said, okay, I'm going to read in all these files. I'm talking like 200 files for like one setting, like the fan on low. And then I'm going to run that through whatever statistical analysis or neural network training or whatever it is, um, you know, say if it's neural networks, I'm using TensorFlow and that's going to train a network. And great, I've got this, I've got this graph or excuse me, a model. And I can use that model then to you run inference using that model. And that spits out some numbers. And I use those numbers to determine, hey, is there an anomaly or not? So that's all in Python. When I'm ready to put it on back on the microcontroller and say, you know what, I want you to run this neural network on the microcontroller. TensorFlow Lite has this version called TensorFlow Lite for microcontrollers. It's a little, I'm going to say a little rough. It's pretty rough right now. A lot of stuff is documentations all over the place. And a lot of stuff's like, well, oh, just read the code. And it's really rough to read. I oh, understand it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I understand it barely as pie. Yeah, right. Easy as pie. To how many to how many decimal places? <laughs> and so I got it running and I can run my neural network on the microcontroller and I can put that on the fan. And now that's what we have called edge AI, right? I have AI not running on servers somewhere, somewhere, but on a microcontroller, on an edge device. And I was able to do anomaly detection with that. And I think I put that back in Arduino, which is all C++. As far as I know, TensorFlow Lite is TensorFlow Lite for microcontrollers is just C++ because I think they use object-oriented programming. I might be wrong here. I'm playing with it more today or tomorrow for a different project. I would love to get it working in just C because um, C++ has some iffy issues in embedded systems where like, 
oh, you create this object and do you know where this object went? No. Okay, well, that's memory that you now no longer know about. And so controlling memory usage is a big thing in microcontrollers. Right, right. And you think you could fine tune a little better in C, which, I mean, we could dive into the C++ debate and be here for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Although I think because I know I'm going to get the tweets and the emails. So have you considered Rust? It's come up several times and it looks like a fascinating language. I just simply have not played with it yet. And I don't know much about it to really make an informed decision on whether it would be appropriate for microcontrollers or not. I really don't know. What, what do you like about Rust? So, yeah, I'll give you the good and the bad, right? Rust is like C++ if it was, well, basically newer and not... Uh, you know, I, I'm actually not that anti-C++. Let me just start by framing where I'm coming from. I think part of the problem with C++ is that it's just old, right? And it's had to evolve. And it's, I think John Syracuse made a joke about it being a denial of service attacks in terms of language features on other languages, <laughs> which is kind of true, right? Like if any language has a feature, the C++ team is right there to copy the crap out of that and throw it into C++. Right. Uh, which, like every year I end up having to work in C++ for like two or three months. And I'm shocked, like at least every two years, there's major language features that are radically different than, than the last time I really dug into it. And you can do wild things in C++, right? Like your whole thing about orphaning objects and just having like memory leaking. Yeah, that's, but that's even a tame case, right? There's all oh, kinds yeah. of, like, yeah, that's... Rust is like C++ with a lot of discipline. Now, the cost of that discipline is I find it slower to initially prototype in because it forces you to catch every possible error, you know, within reason, right? I'm using every error in quotes, not somebody, somebody's going to email and say, well, actually, and you can use the unsafe keyword and turn all that off. But you're kind of defeating the purpose of Rust if you're using the unsafe keyword too much, right? Because then you, so that's nice. I mean, performance wise, it's all native code. It's nice. Hmm. So the it big, does compile. It compiles it machine does, language. It does. It compiles all the way down. Ooh, so as long as your microcontroller has a compiler for it, you're good, right? Yeah, and I can really quickly. I, I know some of them support it. I think there's actually an official Arduino support now, but I might be wrong. But maybe it's not Arduino. But yeah, you can a bunch of like Linuxy embedded systems do support it. There's a whole Rust embedded project. I'll throw it in the show notes. It's great. Here's where it kind of can fall apart. You don't because it's not as popular. You don't have the library support that you might want. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And that's where you're going to get yeah. That's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I love Arduino is because, you know, you can bash the IDE all day long, but it's like, look, I can prototype so quickly in Arduino just because I can grab all the libraries that are out there. Even if they're not like perfect, I'm like, I don't care. I just need it to work to, as a proof of concept. And it's great. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are ways to just have Rust work with C++, but once you go down that path, you're, you're kind of in madness. So I guess I ended up not advocating for Rust here. I think you should stick C++. <laughs> I mean, if you have pre-written libraries, there's literally no reason to do the work again. Um, it, well, which is unfortunate because it's something you're, you're hitting on an interesting topic here because, you know, Arduino is kind of looked down upon by a lot of the professional community. And with right, rightful reasons, a lot of times, like you don't know what that code is doing. But by the same token, I also find that many embedded programmers, specifically like firmware writers, C writers, if they're not writing the like, circular buffers and, you know, spy drivers themselves, they consider it bad code, right? It, there's a there's a big part of like, if I don't have control of it, of it I don't want to touch it. I, there's got to be some kind of middle ground here. You know, I'm keeping an eye on like the Zephyr project, which is funded by the Linux Foundation. And it's supposed to be like an RTOS 
in the set, but like on a larger scale, like it's an art toss, but it comes with these libraries that allow me to do mm-hmm. like networking, string manipulation, all these things where a lot of times you struggle so hard with in most embedded code. And I'm really hoping that that takes off. I tried it once and it's a little rough, like, oh, you can only cross compile stuff on Linux. And I'm like, well, that's great. I get it. It's the Linux foundation. But if you want to be accepted by the larger array of professional uh, embedded programmers, you've got to work with other operating systems. So I'm hopeful for Zephyr Project because that allows you to hopefully have like better, more professional libraries that you can just plug in to whip out embedded code faster. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... I don't know. I guess I'm a little more cynical than you. I don't think you're you're going to get away from kind of the, uh, let's say, diffuse nature of the ecosystem for embedded just because of all the different players in the space wanting to kind of control their own little domains. One second, I lost you there. You but hopefully I'm wrong, right? Hopefully some standard comes that... All right. What I said is... Uh, I'm a little more cynical than you. I'm a little less hopeful on that front, right? Because all these kind of platforms really want to be platforms. They don't, you know, they want to control their own little worlds, I guess. I'm hoping I'm wrong, right? <laughs> like I'm hoping there is some adopted standard that just makes life easy for us. But it's the famous, uh, what is it? The famous XKCD comic, right? I know I'll develop a standard. And then how do you answer that? By developing another competing standard. <laughs> Right. I, I'm doing I'm doing a project right now on packaging for Linux and it's like all effectively the same stuff, but each distro has its own little wonderful snowflake of a package management system. And it's we just as a community, we have this way of wanting to control our own little domains. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So I have two questions I ask at the end of every show. Now you've been on before. So I'm gonna I'll ask the hard one first. What should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? Ooh. That we touched on machine learning. And an interesting one would be, where do you see machine learning on microcontrollers going? Because I bet there's a lot of people going, you'll never run. You'll never run that kind of code on a microcontroller. There's no way. All right, then where do you see machine learning going on microcontrollers? <laughs> Funny you should ask, Michael. What are the odds? It's, it's, it's right. It's interesting because right now, I think a lot of the focus on what I'm going to call big machine learning, right? Let's, let's run TensorFlow on these giant servers and most of it's focused at image processing, image recognition, sound processing, and sound recognition, and doing speech analysis and speech creation, right? We're, we're trying to interface with humans. You know, we're seeing self-driving cars hit the news a whole lot. That's that's a big application for a lot of different machine learning algorithms. And that's a lot of, you know, both vision processing and sensor fusion, where you're taking in different types of sensors and running machine learning algorithms. That's a big one that we're seeing. And like your Amazon Echo devices, Alexa, huge AI implications, right? Voice is a new frontier for computing interfaces. And I think that's absolutely fantastic that we're able to do that. It's so super cool. You know, security concerns aside that, you know, is my Echo always listening to me? I love waking up in the yeah, morning and telling... <laughs> yeah. I love waking up in the morning and telling Alexa, like, you know, play me the news, play me music. What are my notifications? It's really cool. I think that's, that's a way forward. Um, but something I think that's missing that a lot of people aren't seeing at least as far as like home automation in the everyday life or the consumer's life is that just like kind of IOT took a backseat and became more of an industrial IOT or uh, uh, being deployed in cities that, you know, you know, the home, the magical home of tomorrow never really got came to fruition with IOT, but the industrial side of it where people are using it to like monitor machines is a fantastic use that we just don't see in our everyday lives. And same thing with edge AI, like the anomaly detection thing I'm working on. That's a big one. That's a big research area where let's take smaller sensors and give us 
immediate feedback and important feedback using machine learning algorithms rather than just piping that raw data because that's going to save you a ton of network, a ton of bandwidth. And the problem we saw with like IoT is that we're trying to pipe all this raw data and make sense of it. And we're hosing a lot of our networks in the process of doing that. And one benefit of running AI on smaller devices is that you can save this network bandwidth, right? If each device knows when an anomaly happens, I don't have to you know, send tons and tons of data across the network, which is hugely beneficial. And something else I want to work on is a future project for me or a current project is you know, training wake words. There's a lot of demos out there, a lot of canned demos. If you go and play with some machine learning stuff like, oh, download the MNIST image set and good job, you made a a digit, a handwritten digit classifier. Well, that's great. So how do I train it now to recognize alphabet, you know, letters in the alphabet that I've written myself? That's a lot more work. And what they don't tell you is you need hundreds or thousands of samples and you need to collect those. So nobody's really cracked that yet of like, oh, how do you train your own basic networks and collect your own data? That's, that's a tough one. I think people know how it's just, you know, that's a lot of effort. So I'm exploring ways to do that. And ultimately, I'd love to get some tools out that like, help people train their own wake words. Um, you know, there's a Google data set right now where you can use some pre-canned stuff, but nobody's really working on it. how do you get your own? And I've seen that asked a few times. So I, I'm excited to see a lot of that come out and people start using it on embedded systems. And I just want to see what makers do with it. I would love to give these tools to makers and be like, make something cool. Make your robot respond to its name after you've trained it what its name is. I think that's neat. I love that. Okay, now, second question. And I, I, we've had you on before, so I, you know, Probably know the answer still, unless something changed. What is your workstation look like? <laughs> so I, I, I will say I'm still on the Alienware. It hasn't died yet. So yeah, I answered that one in the, the last one. And the one thing I didn't get, get into was the, uh, the tool chain setup. And it's fascinating because I think a lot, of, a lot of my software dev friends, they usually work in you know one IDE and that's it. And they have all the hot keys and special things and they've learned it and they know it very well, right? You know, enter all the Vim and Emacs people to tell me how that's the best, right? And they, of course, you know, yeah, yeah, they've, they've configured it and they like know all the hot keys and they can do it in their sleep. Great. As an embedded person, it's still not that way. Generally, for each embedded system, you have your own tool suite. And at least that was the case for the longest time until Arduino came along and said, you know, what? we're going to support a handful of different ones. And that was kind of cool, right? It was all started with that at AVR 320, that at Mega 328P, which was kind of like, okay, this is the simple one. And then other people started taking their processors and supporting them in the Arduino IDE. Of course, the professionals hated it because there's no like good step through debugging tools and whatnot. But, you know, the idea was there. So we're starting to see hopefully more of that. So there's this thing called Platform IO that runs in Atom as well as VS Code. And that's super cool. So I've been tending more towards VS Code when I can. I like that IDE. I can install plugins and I can get step through debugging. But if you're going to be using specific embedded systems, like I'm all about the STM32 right now as like my go-to ARM processor, I'm still right. using their homegrown, you know, corporate IDE. It's based on Eclipse and I can't stand Eclipse and I'm glad that seems to be kind of a dying thing. But, you know, yes, that, that down forever. I mean, oh, crap. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I had to. Yeah. <laughs> but, so it's uh, funny I mean, you mentioned platform IO. I, I'm actually currently evaluating it for the Mad Botter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I've been, we've been trying it out. It's we'll have to talk about that some other time. It's I have to tell you, I'm so far super impressed by it. We're doing some stuff on the Beagle Bones. Mm -hmm. uh, for those who don't know, Beagle Bone is like a you know they're they're boards, right? I, I, I don't even think it's a standard. It's just a specific line of boards. I'm just so impressed with 
how this little add-on effectively for VS Code can become a full-featured IDE for embedded development. Yeah, I think for I think for Linux systems, it's it's great. I've had troubles with it for some microcontrollers. Some of their basic stuff, like if it's one of their like you know very well supported board, it it generally just works. I find it really hard to like tweak it to do something like oh I want to use this specific microcontroller instead of this other one that has the supported board. I had a really hard time scrubbing through their documents, trying to figure out, you know, what things do I need to tweak to uh, support my own chip? Now, that's the case with like Arduino as well, right? It's um, right. This is not necessarily a shortcoming. This is just what you deal with. I feel that their docs could be a little better with helping me like port stuff to my own things. And in which case it would be a fantastic like professional tool. That's the only thing. Yeah, that's probably fair, right? I'm mostly doing embedded Linux. So you, I have the, you know, the joy of just having basically Debian there. But we can yeah. have an argument about whether it's really Debian or not. But eh. Eh, yeah, I'm cares. sure it's some port or something. Yeah. For embedded Linux, I've been using SSH like a fiend. I SSH and I set up SSHFS, I think, the file system thing. And you can run it on Windows. And so I've got VS Code set up so like I can just edit files and be like, oh, I'm going to do Python because it's mostly Python for me if I'm doing embedded Linux the mo- most of the time. And I'll just, you know, I've got an SSH terminal. I can run run commands on my on my Raspberry Pi or BeagleBone. I can move files in and out if I need to like swap data around, check things in and out of Git, and then just edit files directly on the thing using VS Code for my host machine, right? <laughs> like, so I'm actually a big fan of just SSHing in, but I might have to tinker with platform IO for embedded Linux. Yeah, it, it's not bad. I mean, I just noticed, I so I thought it only ran in VS Code. Apparently, you can use it in Vim. Really? And, I didn't know that. And here's the kicker. I'm I, So day-to-day, I use all the JetBrains IDEs. Like, I basically live in PyCharm. I did not know that Platform.io works in C-Lion, which is their C++, um, and weirdly enough, their Rust IDE. That, oh my god, I have some configuring to do after this. <laughs> I would I love to know what you think of it. Like, how does that I, work out once you, you tinker with it? I have no idea. So I am one of those software developers you mentioned who just like has his keystrokes, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I've been using the JetBrains IDs ever since I got out of using NetBeans. And well, which, by the way, I don't think the Net... Oh, the Net... They even support NetBeans. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I just... Because they, they feature VS Code on the website. So I just assumed I had to use VS Code. Oh, wow. Yeah. God damn. I would start... Yeah. This is pretty awesome. Yeah. So I have my keyboard configuration just so. I'm very, I'm anal about it, right? But <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. I would I'd love to discuss at some point, like your thoughts on it. I might have to try it for microcontrollers. And I'd love to discuss your thoughts on Platform IO once you've tinkered with it some more. Yeah, that would be really cool. So Sean, where can people find you? So I'm mostly active on Twitter is at Sean Hemel, first, last name, no space, no underscore. I'm also on Instagram, but it's Sean underscore Hemel. Uh, I don't post as much on there. And my website is SeanHemel.com. Got it. And if anybody's curious or if anybody's interested, are you currently looking for clients? Not at this particular moment. I, I appreciate the shout out. I'm I'm trying to pull back a little bit so I can really focus on machine learning. It's It's like I'm going back to school for a few months so I can actually learn much about this as much about this tiny ml stuff as possible and hopefully be you know somewhat of an influencer in the space is my goal and then maybe look at some clients down the road that might be interested in that realm that is a super honest answer very good sorry folks we're looking to hire him and get your get your videos all jazzed up your your (laughs) i mean to be fair reach out i'm happy to answer questions and i've got some friends who are generally looking for work as well i'm happy to act act as a connector Awesome. Well, that's all going to be in the show notes. And uh, folks, thanks for listening. Sean, thank you for coming on again. I would love to have you on again, and we can have the tournament of IDEs. 
Heck yes. Thank you, Michael. This was great. <laughs> Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs>